Before we look into the text today, let's take a brief, brief moment to reorient ourselves to the book of Exodus to ensure that we keep before us the larger context of this important book and its place in the entirety of biblical revelation. Now, I'm not going to walk through an entire outline of the book, but highlight maybe some of the major theological themes that we gain from our studies as we go through this. Bernard Ram, uh, the author of the classic book, Protestant Biblical Interpretation, which some of you may have and have seen, he wrote a small sweeping commentary on Exodus and noted some of the foundational theological themes that are central to our Christian faith. I just want to highlight a couple of those. First, the most obvious is that Exodus is a book of divine revelation. The history of Israel's deliverance from the bondage is the major story throughout Old Testament history. And the typology of deliverance from sin made possible by an almighty and gracious God. There's also the doctrine of sacrifice, which begins with the Passover lamb that we'll examine next week in chapter 12. And of course, this is the foreshadowing of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist so clearly put it. There's also a theology of worship exemplified in the tabernacle that became the basis of expressions in the New Testament of the worship of God. In Exodus, we find the foundation of biblical ethics in the Ten Commandments, which has also been the basis of much of the law in civilized countries throughout human history. All this is in Exodus. Also in Exodus, we discover the calling of the prophet, which begins with Moses. Now, Abraham was called a prophet in the sense of a powerful intercessor before God, but the unique role of a prophet as a man of the word of God surfaces with Moses. Moses is also the theologian of the Old Testament. He receives specific revelations of the nature of God. The knowledge of God is implicit in the whole record, God's love, the law, his justice, his holiness, and so forth. In Exodus, we're introduced to the priesthood, which again is a foreshadowing of the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. And this is made abundantly clear in the New Testament book of Hebrews. And then there's also the theology of the covenant, which when we get to chapter 24, we'll talk about the covenant between the Lord and his people with the sprinkling of the blood, which also is a foreshadowing of the covenant that we have in Jesus Christ, as explained in Hebrews 9 and 10. So these are all fundamental, foundational, theological truths to the nature of Yahweh and his relationship to his people. And what is taught in Exodus is also essential to how Israel understood her history. When you read through the Old Testament, as long as you don't get bogged down in Leviticus or Numbers, you'll note the many times Israel's history of redemption from the bondage in Egypt is recounted in the lessons learned in the process. I remember when I realized that when I was in college, how amazing it was and what an important principle for us to reflect. And I think that's also significant in the fact that when we take communion, do this in remembrance of me. They remembered their history of being delivered from bondage. All right, so that's a broad sweep of the themes in the book. Now let's resume our study and continue to walk through this great book. Today, we're looking at the ninth plague, or I'll use the word strike, which is probably a better rendering of that word, and the introduction of the final strike, all covered in Exodus 10, 21 through 29, and also chapter 11. So far, we've seen eight 
plagues or strikes that have increased in severity. I like the way the commentator J.A. Motyer describes the progression of the plagues and their increasing severity. Here's this quote. The plagues run from the passing discomfort of water turned to blood to the revoltingly disruptive invasion of frogs to the potentially disease-bearing gnats and flies, the commercially damaging animal sickness, the personally debilitating boils and the environmental disastrous hail and locusts, and the terrifying darkness, and end at the last with the heart-stopping sadness of the death of the sons. So as we've walked through these plagues, we've been instructed regarding the why behind them. And so some of those that reasons are to multiply God's signs and wonders. This is repeated a few times in the scriptures. And also so that the Egyptians will know that Yahweh is God. In the early plagues, God showed that his power far exceeded anything possible by the magicians of the secret arts. And with each plague, he rendered the gods of Egypt impotent. The plagues delivered such chaos and upheaval, no government could manage the calamity. Now think of FEMA trying to manage one crisis after another in a relatively compressed period of time. If you remember back during Hurricane Katrina, I was working for UPS at the time, that whole area of New Orleans was part of our region, and we, our, our office was just in crisis mode trying to manage through that from a business standpoint, finding where all of our people were, were they safe, and so forth. Imagine that kind of scale multiplied nine times up to this point, trying to manage the chaos going on. It started with the Nile turning to blood, killing all the fish. Well, there goes the source of food, drinking water, bathing followed by millions of frogs rotting in heaps and piles and so on and so forth. And so now we come yet to yet another strike. Let's read the text together starting in verse 21 of chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor, any, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore, livestock too shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Beware, do not see my face again, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, you are right. I shall never see your face again. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on Exodus, noted this interesting story. On August 1st, 1914, Sir Ernest Shackleton and his crew set sail from London aboard the ship Endurance. They were bound for Antarctica where the famous explorer hoped to traverse the continent on foot. 
But Shackleton never made the trek because before the endurance could reach land, the ship became hopelessly lodged in the ice pack. And it was January 1915 now, and from this point, their goal became simple survival. The crew faced many hardships in the months that followed, including freezing temperatures and near starvation. But of all the frozen terrors they faced, none was more disheartening than the long polar night. The sailors grew uneasy as winter set in and the light began to fade. In early May, the sun vanished altogether, not to be seen again until late July. Shackleton's biographer wrote, In all the world, there is no desolation more complete than the polar night. It is a return to the ice age. No warmth, no life, no movement. Only those who have experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without the sun day after day and week after week. Few men accustomed to it can fight off its effects altogether, and it has driven some men mad. The ninth plague was a plague of darkness. And just like the darkness the crew bound for Antarctic experience, it was quite troubling. So let's take a look at the seriousness of this plague. Just like the previous eight plagues, liberal scholars typically have either tried to explain these events as mythological stories or natural seasonal occurrences. And neither explanation really fits the biblical narrative as described in Exodus. One explanation was that the darkness was a result of an intense sandstorm that was common in Egypt, so intense that they couldn't see anything. However, there are a couple of factors that dispel that whole explanation. Well, first of all, the darkness was over Egypt. It was contained to a localized area. The text says darkness over Egypt, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. So not only was the light from the so not only was the light from the sun, the moon, and stars completely blacked out, the Egyptians had no light in their dwellings, which meant they couldn't light a lamp or light for fire. Now, I think it's difficult for us to grasp this complete darkness. We have such light pollution in our area where we live that even in the wee hours of the night, we can see to move about. Even when the, the moon is, there's no light from the moon. Even if there was a complete power outage, when there is light from the moon and the stars, it gives enough for us to navigate about. Now, there are two words in this text that describe the intensity of this darkness. First of all, it was darkness that was felt. The verb use of this word occurs eight times in the Old Testament and is often translated to grope. For example, the word is used in Genesis 27:22 when Jacob was deceiving Isaac, whose eyesight was virtually gone. He felt or groped him to identify by feel that it was Esau because he couldn't see. The picture in Deuteronomy 28, 29 paints a good picture of this word. And you will grope at noon as the blind man gropes in darkness. Now we can all picture that, you know, if all of a sudden you're blindfolded and you play one of those games and you're trying to find your way around because you can't see anything. That's what it's like. About the closest I've ever come to complete darkness is when I get up in the middle of the night turn on a light to see where I'm going, and then in those few seconds after the light's turned out, before my eyes have adjusted to any available light, it's like total blindness. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, you know what it's like. At that moment, I feel like I'm groping about, hoping I don't bump into anything, step on anything, trip over anything or whatever. 
You know, my worst fear when I was, my kids were young, is that in those moments I'd be walking around barefooted and step on a Lego. <laughs> that was just so frightening to me. You know the feeling. So in this darkness, there was no available light. So this groping about was paralyzing. Also, it says that the darkness was thick. Now, that's not usually a word you associate with light. The Hebrew word here is used in a literal sense, but is often translated calamity or distress in a figurative sense. Proverbs 4.19 says such darkness symbolizes moral failure and its punishment. Those two words together show the intensity of this darkness. The distress from total darkness lasted for three days and was so complete they couldn't see anyone and they did not leave their homes the entire time. The fear, the calamity, the distress they felt from this sustained darkness was so paralyzing they could not do, they did not do anything due to the crippling darkness. Now, that's the description, but what's the significance of the plague? You have to wonder what their thoughts were when they couldn't do anything but sit or lie in their dwellings doing nothing. I can't help but think that as some sat motionless in complete darkness, that there was some consideration or doubts about their sun god. The impotent sun god, Amun-Ra. In Egypt, the sun god was called Amun-Ra. They believed that the solar deity was their creator. They actually had a hymn they sang to Amun-Ra, and the lyrics go like this. There is none beside him. You mold the earth to your wish, you and you alone. All people, herds, and flocks, all on the earth that walk on legs, all on high that fly with their wings. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? But it's false. The Egyptians worshiped the sun, and now it failed them. This was a profound lesson for both the Egyptians and the Israelites. In chapter 9, Moses stood before Pharaoh and delivered his message from Yahweh, with these plagues and said, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. In one plague after another, all the support from these false gods have been removed. It's like one table leg after another is taken away and all their beliefs, all their support structures have been rendered powerless and the whole system of belief collapses right before them. The magicians have shown their inadequacy and their gods have proven impotent and non-existent. But what has been evident to them? The omnipotence of the God of Israelites. What a contrast. After eight previous signs and wonders from Yahweh, and now this one that struck at the very heart of their pagan worship, the one true almighty God who created the sun and the stars has made his presence and power known. In the same message to Pharaoh when he was told there was no one like me in all the earth, he was told behind all the signs and wonders in nine, chapter 9, verse 16, the purpose was to show his power and to proclaim his name throughout all the earth. Yeah, that was a powerful lesson to both the Egyptians and the, and the uh, Israelites. So when the Egyptians and Pharaohs experienced firsthand the contrast between the impotence of their false gods and the, and the omnipotence of Yahweh, you would think they would finally get the message. There is no God but Yahweh, and he alone should be worshipped. But that didn't happen. 
So at the same time, this display of power was a stern reminder to the Israelites and warning of the seriousness of spiritual infidelity. If you were to flash flash forward to Deuteronomy 4.19, you would read this. He says, and beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven to see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Interesting pop culture side note. Do we have any Detroit Lions fans here? Raise your hand. I'm not surprised. Uh, If you watched the Cowboys-Detroit Lions game a week ago, you may have caught uh, one of the wide receivers, one of the names. I kept hearing it. I kept mentioning it. I was like, wait, wait, what did he say? What did he say? So I looked it up. I got his last name. I kept hearing his name. And his last name is St. Brown. Does anybody know what his first name is? Amun-Ra. Amun-Ra is the name of the Egyptian sun god that we just talked about. The same name. He was named by his father, who, according to Wikipedia, if you can trust that, has an interest in black consciousness, which examines racial hierarchy and identity back to ancient Egypt. Now, let's chase this rabbit a little further. Any Chicago Bears fans here? I am the only one with a hand up. I am a Chicago Bears fan. Yes, I've had a lot of painful seasons. Well, Amon Ra's brother, the football player, not the sun god, <laughs> plays for the Chicago Bears. His first name is Equinemius. Now, that's different than Amon Ra, and it has some positive qualities to it. If you look it up, it means it's in full control of your faculties, collected, poised, self-collected, self-contained, composed, all good qualities you want to see developed in your child. But one of the other names given to Equinemius is interesting. His full name is Equinemius Tristan Imhotep J. St. Brown. Imhotep is another name that we know from ancient Egypt. He was possibly the architect of the Step Pyramid and the high priest of the sun god Amun-Ra. And then in 3,000 years following Imhotep's death, he was glorified and deified. Now, I'm not sure why in this family there's such fascination with ancient Egypt and the false gods that were worshipped back in the day. But if you're like me, when Sandy and I chose names for our four children, the names of false gods from ancient Egypt or other pagan cultures were not on our list. In fact, my oldest son is here today, and if I introduced you to say, hey, this is my oldest son, Malik you would probably think there was something, you would have some questions about my mental and spiritual stability, which you would probably justify. God shares his glory with no one. He alone is the supreme God. The only God in any notion of another deity is an abomination. The ten strikes against Pharaoh in ancient Egypt rendered all the false gods they worshipped completely impotent, false and non-existent. So now, Pharaoh is groping about in darkness as a result of this ninth strike against Egypt. And what was his response? Well, there was a conditional offer. People go, livestock stays. Basically, he says, you can go, but it's on my terms, not yours. 
You and your people get out of my sight, but leave your wealth behind. And what was the response? Well, there was a categorical rejection. Moses rejects the offer because without the livestock, they could not properly offer sacrifices to God for appropriate worship. God's plan is always his terms, not ours. We don't dictate the conditions of our obedience to his commands. We don't get a line item veto to his expectations. Yes, yeah, um, no, 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 yes, no, we don't get that option. And why would we if he is in fact the almighty God of the universe? And of course, once again, what was Pharaoh's response? Now, you're going to love this last point. Yeah, I kind of get hooked on C's. Um, So it's, yeah, it's a curse. But the cardiac calcification, I searched long and hard to find a C that matched that flow. Pharaoh sticks to his stubbornness with a heart of stone. What a sad and tragic state to be in. In one display of the supremacy of Yahweh, one after another, he refuses to yield to the plan of God and even concludes the conversation with a threat. Now, the threat issued by Pharaoh um, in, in Moses' response presents a bit of a challenge in terms of the chronology of the events. The conversation at the end of chapter 10 in reference to the ninth plague appears to be the final conversation between Pharaoh and Moses. But in chapter 11, 11, they're having another conversation, it appears. So liberals and critics like to cite this as a contradiction to debunk the inerrant, infallible scripture claims. Um, But I think we need to look at this a little deeper. John Davis, in his commentary on Exodus, provides a good explanation. He says this, The best solution to the problem at hand is to recognize the fact that Exodus, that the Exodus material, like much of the historical material material in the Old Testament, is not organized after a strict chronology, but rather on the basis of certain topics. This reflects the idea of retrospect in historical narrative. Now, other commentators agree with this understanding. I consulted several. The wording in Hebrews 11.1 would be better understood as some translations render it, the Lord had said to Moses. So take a look at this chronology that's laid out that, uh, he, that John Davis suggests. The plague of darkness occurred in the text we read, chapter 10, uh, verses 21 through 23. God instructs Moses regarding the final plague in the Passover during the three days of darkness, which is covered in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, and then later in chapter 12. Moses' interview with Pharaoh and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, perhaps involving an additional day, occurs in chapter 10, 24 through 29. Moses' interview with Pharaoh is continued in chapter 11, verses 4 through 8. Moses' departure from the presence of Pharaoh and a summary of the plagues occur in chapter 11, 9, and 10. And then when we get into chapter 12, the actual strike of the firstborn occurs, which will be covered next week. So that's a a better way of looking at the chronology. So now let's take a look at the final strike as we go into chapter 11. Based on this chronology in our text, the revelation of God to Moses regarding this final blow probably occurred while the Egyptians were stuck at home, groping about in total darkness. 
And for the first time, Moses now learns that this is the end of the strikes, and this is the final one that would initiate the exodus from bondage. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Now, as we've noted, in the space of a year's time, most likely, as some people have, have, have concluded, Egypt had been ravaged by all these strikes. And now, after nine devastating blows with far-reaching and disastrous results, the last one would be the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. Why did it take 10 strikes against Egypt and Pharaoh to finally secure their release? If this last strike was the clincher, why not start with that? Call it done and move out. Well, of course, none of this was a surprise to Yahweh. It wasn't like he did the first strike and go, oh, well, that didn't get him. Well, let's give him another one and another one. Oh, no, that didn't work either. That was never the case. And as we've seen over and over again, and repeated once again here in verse 9, every strike against Pharaoh and the Egyptians was a demonstration of the power of God and its supremacy over, over all the false gods that the Egyptians worship. That's quite a, a lesson in the fallacy of world religions and far, foreign gods. But the Egyptians were not the, ones, were not the only ones schooled in this grand display of power. While Pharaoh and the Egyptians were suffering from the judgment of God, the, the Israelites were being schooled in theology as they were preserved, shielded, and protected. For 400 years now, the Israelites had been in bondage to the Egyptians, and they were surrounded by this pagan culture of, of worship. And possibly as many as 80 gods, as some have, 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 uh, have considered. And it was uh, various idols that, that, that were strewn about the city and the area. And one strike after another, these false gods were shown to the Israelites as well to be worthless and non-existent. Now think about this. Once they were out of Egypt and marching toward the promised land, when the law of God was given to Moses and then to the people, what was the first commandment given? You shall have no other gods before me. Now think about if you're sitting there listening to that first commandment. As it's read, there were many who stood in that crowd who could clearly remember the strikes against Egypt and the lesson of the false gods. And you would think that with that memory clearly in their minds, the response would be for all time. Well, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Those gods were worthless. Our God is supreme and the only God. But when you read through their history, they didn't always get that. So God tells Moses that with this final strike, Pharaoh will let them go, and he proceeds to give them some initial instructions in anticipation of their departure. Let's continue on reading. Verse 2, speak now in the hearing of the people that each man asked from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So these preparations, as you saw there, obtained silver and gold from the Egyptians. Now, when I first read that, I kept going, well, why? Why did, what do they need that for? Then you do a little bit of analysis, and it goes all the way back to what God told Moses 
in chapter 3, 21 through 22, where that they would be going out with riches. This was also told to uh, Abraham. I think I might be jumping ahead. It was told to, to Abraham back in 15 that when they left, he was told that in his dream, they would, they would have such great resources. So, so this was a promise that was made years before and that they would be going out with such, what, uh, with, they would be going out with such riches. In the, in the 322 reference to this event, the New American Standard and the Legacy Standard versions use the word plunder to describe the process of, a, of a acquiring gold and silver. Now, if you look that word up in the English dictionary, it means to steal. And typically using force and, too often, uh, and, and often in times of civil, dis, uh, civil disorder or war. If you remember in the last few years, two or three years ago, we saw all this rioting and the peaceful protests that were going on a few years ago. We saw scenes of civil unrest and massive looting where stores were plundered of valuable goods. That's not the scene implied here by this word. One of the highly respected Hebrew lexicons that I consulted stated that the basic sense of this word is drawing out or pulling out. The Israelites were told to ask for the goods, not to steal. And they acquired the goods as the result of the favor God granted them. Now that word favor is the same word that can be translated grace. It's the same word that was used back in Genesis 6. But Noah found what? Favor, grace in the eyes of Yahweh. So the idea of the Israelites looting the Egyptians for silver and gold is preposterous. There was no fraud involved, no stealing, which would be a contradiction to the law of God that would be given later in Exodus. There was no borrowing, as some have suggested. This is suggested this could be translated. They were given grace from God in the eyes of the Egyptians. They asked for articles of silver and gold, and they received them in abundance. But now why do they need them? Well, back in Genesis 15, during that dream that Abraham was given, he was told that they would be part of the blessings would be that they would leave with such wealth and resources. And later, when the construction of the tabernacle begins, God directs Moses to ask of the people to give them an offering of silver and gold, among other items. And no doubt, some of the gold, maybe all of the gold and silver that, that they gave came from what they collected in Egypt to build the tabernacle. So, also, they had obtained favor from the Egyptians. Moses had gained respect from the people. In addition to God granting eyes in the Egyptians toward the Israelites, Moses was, as it says, greatly esteemed in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of, people, in the sight of the people. How did this happen? Well, the magicians couldn't match the miracles that were demonstrated through him. And in one plague after another, was proof that the God Moses served was superior to any of their false gods. And respect that Moses gained was a direct result of him being God's man for his purposes. So now we return to the conversation that was had between Moses and Pharaoh as the last strike is announced. First of all, there was the timing of the strike. It says about midnight. The particular day is not mentioned, nor a precise time. Now, think about this. In light of the fact that Egypt had been struck nine times with devastating results, should leave no doubt in Pharaoh's mind that this message from Yahweh 
was in, would indeed occur. And even if he puts up a facade of defiance, there had to be an uneasy fear possessing his thoughts and anticipation when you're told that the firstborn would all die. Let's take a look at the description of the strike. Death of all the firstborn of Egyptian families from the slave girl to Pharaoh's family and the firstborn of the cattle. In this chapter, this is all an announcement about what will happen. It doesn't occur until the next chapter, so I won't steal the thunder from next week's lesson. Except to say this. For all the previous nine strikes, there have been non-miraculous explanations by some for their occurrence. And this last one is no exception. Some have tried to explain this as a, some type of childhood illness or a communicable disease that maybe resulted from all the infections of the boils and the flies and the gnats, the rotting livestock and, and frogs. All I have to say about this is this. That would be a very unique strain of disease to skip all the adults, skip, to the, skip past the first, uh, skip past the second, third, and fourth born children, skip all the Israelite firstborn, all the second born livestock, only to impact the firstborn. That takes some serious imagination. That'd be one unique strain of disease that would take their lives. That's just not plausible. Next is the impact of the strike. The reaction to this last strike is no real surprise. The death of a child to any family is heart-wrenching, devastating tragedy. In verse 6, we're told, Moreover, there shall be a cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as never shall be again. Now, such an outcry is not hard to imagine when this event occurs simultaneously across all of Egypt. Cries of grief sounding out from every household must have been a deafening sound of agony. Now, again, of course, there are liberal theologians who write this whole event off as mere myth because they can't reconcile such a devastating strike against what they would say would be innocent human beings. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But in terms of the historical accuracy of this strike, Walt Kaiser cites a few extra-biblical sources that appear to refer to this occurrence. In an article entitled The Smiting of the Firstborn, an Egyptian Myth, which was a question, an Egyptian myth, there's a citation from a pre-Mosaic pyramid text that refers to that day of slaying, that day of slaying the firstborn. Another text, he cites, the pre-Mosaic coffin text, refers to that night of slaying the firstborn. So there were other sources that would align to what exactly happened. Now, we don't rely on extra-biblical sources to validate the inerrant word of God, but the existence of texts such as these demonstrates the historical accuracy of the Old Testament narrative. Now, part of the reason, I think, some liberal theologians and some current evangelical personalities ignore or debunk many of the Old Testament stories that make them uncomfortable is because they can't conceive of an event like this that, that links with the love and compassion of God. As one lady told me years ago when we were talking about certain sovereign choices of God, she said, mm -mm, my God would not do that. My God would not do that. Have you ever heard that? I'm like, okay, well... <laughs> <laughs> Where do you get that? In this harsh, is this a harsh, cruel, unfair judgment on innocent people, many of them young children? 
Some say that the death of such children, the invasion of armies, wiping out whole nations, the annihilation of Sodom and Gomorrah, paints a low view of the moral character of God. Some then hold the view that the message contained in the Old Testament should not be taken at full literal value and has led others to say that the Bible just contains the word of God in parts in specific places. And so we have to find those places and get rid of everything else. However, here in this church, we strongly hold that the Bible is the word of God and not just contains the word of God. But how do we respond to the accusation of a cruel God? It's a tough question, but I think the explanation that I found, again, in John Davis's commentary of Exodus is quite helpful. This is what he says. In the light of the Old Testament doctrine of God's holiness and his view of sin, it is not inappropriate that he should judge the sinner by whatever means he deems necessary for that moment. Morally, God is, vin is fully vindicated in any act by virtue of his very nature. As a God of love and mercy, he will permit the sinner to live even though that sinner may resist a lifelong revelation of truth. On the other hand, as a God of holiness, he has the inalienable right to punish sin and the sinner at any point in his life. We are the creatures. He's the creator. He's not subject or bound to our perception of fairness or compassion. If you want to get to the right perspective regarding our place before an awesome God, read Job 38. Sometimes I'll go back and read that and just think, what a sobering moment to be able to hear God say all that he said. Or for a summary statement, consider Psalm 115, verses 1 through 3. Let me read that. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth, why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. So what's the significance of this strike? This judgment was appropriate in light of what we now know about Oriental societies. The firstborn was not only an heir of, of a double portion of the father's inheritance, but represented special qualities of life and strength. In Egypt, the firstborn was the one who would succeed his father on the throne. And to lose a firstborn in that society was a blow to their sense of a strong future and prestige. Here's another angle. Consider this. John Walvoord points out in the Bible Knowledge Commentary that the goddess Isis, the wife and sister of Osiris, supposedly protected children. This is one of the gods that they worshipped. But this plague showed her to be totally incompetent to do what the Egyptians trusted her for. And once again, the deities that the Egyptians trusted failed them miserably. And then finally, let's look at the, uh, or next, the distinction of the two nations. The dis as Moses delivers the message from Yahweh regarding the final devastating strike, there's a sharp contrast introduced with the word but. And I absolutely love the word picture that is used to describe this contrast. In fact, I laughed when I read it. I, just, I don't know. Maybe it's just my warped sense of humor. In verse 7 it says, But against the sons of Israel a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. 
Now, I like the rendering of that text, but a more exact reading would be a dog would not move his tongue against man or beast. The word move literally means to cut into, to sharpen, or to bring to a point. The point is that no injury would be brought against Israel, and that would be duly noted by all those in the surrounding areas. Just as the word but introduces a contrast, the word that indicates a purpose. All that has occurred, judgment strikes against Egypt and protection and preservation of Israel, clearly shows the distinction between these two nations. Those that fear and trust the one true God are spared the judgment he invokes on those who worship the false deities. That's pretty simple, but a hard truth for some people to accept. And now let's talk about the conclusion of the strike. The conclusion of the message from Yahweh to Pharaoh is a prediction where the Lord says through Moses, all these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me saying, go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. The Egyptians will be in agreement after this last strike and it's time for the Israelites to go. Some, in fact, will go with them, having been convinced that their God is the true God and not a false deity. At the end of this meeting, Moses leaves in hot anger. Nine previous strikes against Pharaoh in Egypt, and yet he still resists. This last one will be, the, will be devastating. <clears throat> I'm sorry. The last one will be devastating to, to uh, Egypt. Moses knows this. All the previous strikes have occurred exactly as he said, and yet with the promise of this last one, Pharaoh still resists. That's enough to make anybody upset. And finally, in this, last chap- in this chapter, there's a summary of the previous nine strikes against Egypt. The text emphasizes once again that all these are the signs and wonders of a powerful God. You would think that those who had a front row seat to all that occurred during this time would be convinced that there is no God but Yahweh. Sadly, this wasn't the case. And it's a situation that's repeated itself throughout human history. So what do we take away from all this? As I mentioned at the beginning, Exodus is filled with important theological themes. And for some to ignore this book as as they do much of the Old Testament... So much of the character and plan of God is missed. But we also miss important application points that govern our lives in submission to him. Let me pose some questions to you. God or idols? When we consider all the false gods that were rendered powerless, it's clear that these were empty props that provided no support whatsoever. The lesson for us is that any object of trust or dependence outside of God is fruitless and blasphemous. The imaginary deities worshipped in Egypt that were rendered impotent one by one promised them sustenance, wealth, fertility, power, protection, or other life supports. Now maybe people today don't have, some do, don't have stone statues set up as a shrine in their home, but people do look to worldly sources to provide the very same things promised by the Egyptian gods. What do we seek for, for happiness? Where do we seek for happiness, security, success, power, and protection? If it is anything but Yahweh, it's a false god that robs him of his glory and will always disappoint in the end, if not in this life, certainly in the next. So is it God or idols? 
next, who do you most identify with this in this narrative? Moses or Pharaoh? You know, we often ask that question about classic stories. Who do you identify with in this story? This character, this character. Ask yourself that question about this. Think before you answer. You know, we shake our heads in disbelief over Pharaoh's resistance, but we should all ask this question. How many times throughout my life, out of stubbornness or hardness of heart, have I resisted the revealed will of God and chosen my own path? Any resistance to his teaching, any rejection of what we know from Scripture is the right path is a clear indication that we too have a cardiac calcification. I got to use that again. That may sound harsh, but it's no different than when God said to Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh said no. Repeatedly, in the light of evidence that God's word is always true, his path is always the right one, it would do us all well to remember that scenario every time we're faced with a choice to say yes to a command or no like Pharaoh did. So will we speak or be silent? Here's what I mean. As we noted in, in these 10 strikes against Egypt, these were the signs and wonders provided, performed by God to render the false gods powerless. One by one, the props were removed from their belief system until they had nothing. Moses was God's spokesperson. He was the one who began his conversation with Pharaoh saying, thus says the Lord. Now he hasn't called us to announce a plague of darkness over Dallas to render the sun god Amun-Ra powerless, but he has called us to speak the word of God to those we encounter with the goal in many cases to, resent, to render their props powerless. Listen to the words from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. Powerful passage. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. I love that. I wish we had time to, to, to go through that more in depth. But it's true. Peter also tells us, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. That's the equivalent of showing how God makes a distinction between the lost and the regenerate, between the false gods of this age and the true God of the universe. So, will we speak or be silent? And then finally, there was a distinction between Egypt and Israel. One chased false gods in their beliefs and practices, the other worshiped and served the one true God. Do our lives reflect that same distinction in our social circles, our family and work, neighborhood and community, is there a distinction in our character, values and choices and lifestyle that reflects a life devoted to the one true God? Here's one example Jesus gave that distinguishes us from the lost when he said in John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you what? Have love for one another. There are so many more that distinguishes us from the regenerate, from those who worship false gods. These are just a few of the lessons we should take with us from this great text. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that 
in this text, you've demonstrated over and over and over again your omnipotence, your majesty, your power, the right to be called the one true and only God of the universe who created everything that we see and how reprehensible it is to give glory to something other than you because it's all false. It's all a facade. It's idols that can't speak, that can't hear, that can't touch, that can't feel, that have no power whatsoever. So, Lord, I pray that as we contemplate this passage, as we learn from it, the great deep truths, when we make those choices about obedience or denial, Lord, may we always choose the path that you've laid out for us. May we never question your wisdom, your power, your glory, your direction, your will, your commands for our lives, for our lives as individuals and our lives as a church. We thank you for this, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.